You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the transit zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which I record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respect to their elders. The regular Transit Zone podcasts with my co-host Tim Dunlop and Margot Kingston are in recess during a season break. But during this break, we're bringing you a trilogy of pandemic primer podcasts, one on the virus, the second on the pandemic, and the third on the responses around the world to the coronavirus pandemic, with an obvious focus on Australia and New Zealand. These first two podcasts in this series of three are being produced in early and mid-August 2020, as the upsurge of the pandemic, especially in the state of Victoria, continues to upturn Australia socially and economically. As this pandemic has unfolded, our media and journalism has covered it intensively as an unprecedented story, and rightly so. But inevitably, as each news cycle has moved through our lives, critical, detailed information about the COVID-19 virus itself, emerging research about the virus, and real-world experiences of being infected, enduring symptoms, have been fragmented, often unmoored from contexts, and far too often inaccurate or overly speculative, even misleading. Virology and epidemiology specialists have only had about six months to embark upon an intense flurry of research and experimentation globally. New scientific information emerges almost daily, some of it confirming our original assumptions, some of it disabusing us of prior certainties, some of it remarkably new. Perhaps earlier views on the susceptibility of children to COVID-19 infection, its range of symptoms for them, and most critically, their capacity to infect adults falls into that category. This has fundamental implications for reopening our schools, a matter of intense debate here in Australia, and even more so in the United States. So, these Transit Zone Pandemic Primer podcasts to help you deepen your knowledge and understanding of what we're all confronting to appraise our government's and medical advisors' statements about the coronavirus pandemic and their strategies and tactics to counter it, including that key elimination versus suppression debate. In many ways, I think we can make the coronavirus and its actual and potential effects rather abstract in our imaginations. But the virus inhabits a real and physical world right here with us. It and its effects are ultimately eminently describable and understandable within the obvious bounds of our current virological and epidemiological knowledge, and those boundaries keep expanding almost daily. So our guide for these pandemic primer podcasts here in the Transit Zone is Australian-born, now New Zealand-based epidemiologist Professor John Potter. John is Professor at the Centre for Public Health Research, Massey University, Wellington, as well as Professor and Senior Advisor, Seattle's Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre, where he was earlier Director of its vast Division of Public Health Sciences. He's also Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at the University of Washington. From 2016 to 2019, he was Chief Science Advisor to the New Zealand Ministry of Health. John is a prolific publisher and one of the most cited scientific authors in the world and an avid follower of global epidemiological research into the coronavirus. 
the Transit Zone Pandemic Primer podcast, and we start our journey with the virus. John, welcome to the Transit Zone. Thank you, Peter. Nice to be here. What is a virus? Good question. First of all, people ask the question, are they alive? And they're alive in the sense that they can reproduce, but not in the sense that they can live as independent organisms. They're what we call obligate intracellular parasites, which just means they have to be inside a cell in order to survive and reproduce. They hijack the cell's metabolic machinery in order to do that. They turn the cell that they live in into a factory for making new viruses, new copies of themselves. They're very small. The total collection of viruses that we know range from 5 to 300 nanometers, specifically are around 80 to 160 nanometers. Now, for comparison, bacteria can be between 0.5 and 5 microns in size, a tenfold difference in size between viruses and bacteria. Eukaryotic cells, our cells, are 10 times larger again. The coronavirus that's responsible for this pandemic is around 120 nanometers. A few more than 8,000 of them laid end to end would measure just one millimeter. If the virus was actually one millimeter, we would be taller than Everest. You can't see viruses under light microscopes. That's only useful down to about 500 nanometers. You need an electron microscope to see viruses, and that's how they were first described. Many of them look uniform and regular, multi-sided, solid objects, often covered with spikes or standing on legs. They look like someone made them out of a Meccano set. They're composed of genetic material, DNA and RNA, surrounded by a protein coat, which is called a capsid. And the capsid is the thing that is often very regular in its shape. It's not flexible membrane like a bacterium or a human cell. It's like a box. A virus, if we met a virus, it's like a little package of code, information, basically. Yes, exactly. It doesn't have all the machinery that's needed to be alive, but it does have the machinery to make itself enter cells and to reproduce itself. These viruses which surround us, they're almost like the substrate of our biology in a way, aren't they? They're everywhere. When did we first become aware of these viruses? The first description of viruses was in the 1920s or 1930s. And the first one identified was a plant virus, the tobacco mosaic virus. And that's quite a large virus, actually. And then only later did we realize that there were viruses more or less everywhere. And people began to study them. And the the invention of the electron microscope made their study possible. Where do viruses fit into the whole idea of evolution and being able to evolve. They obviously do evolve. They're little packets of code and they have a a genome. So they mutate, they evolve out there in the environment or within our cells. How does that actually happen, John? There are three classical theories about how viruses initially arose. The first one, I suppose, is actually the virus-first hypothesis, which proposes that viruses emerged before cells as a result of complex interactions between various kinds of nucleic acids, DNA, RNA, and proteins. Those, however, if you think about it, would by definition not have been obligate 
intracellular parasites because there'd have been no cells to parasitize. So there's another theory that's called the degeneration theory, which hypothesizes that viruses are derived from cells via loss of cell component parts. But viruses have a whole bunch of things that aren't like cells at all. There's a third hypothesis, which is called the escape hypothesis, proposes that bits of DNA, RNA have escaped from genes of more complex organisms. And that, however, is incomplete too, because it leaves open the question as to where these very regular capsids came from. There's a more recent theory, it's actually quite new, that postulates that viruses emerged at about the same time as cells, both near those black smokers, those hydrothermal vents, or in hot springs. That's where most theories about the emergence of life begin. So DNA and, and RNA and proteins got together to structure themselves into what are hypothesized as replicons things capable of reproducing themselves, living and reproducing organisms. The replicants close to the vents, goes this hypothesis, used the heat and energy to survive and reproduce, whereas those a bit further out needed a more stable environment and developed membranes to keep their metabolic capacity reasonably stable. So they developed membranes and they became cells. The naked replicons were viruses, and they were later able to colonize those cells in order to become reproductively effective and extend their range. It's not clear that any of these hypotheses are actually the, the way in which the whole thing evolved, but those are the theories that we have at the moment. Now introduces to the villain in the piece, the coronavirus. We've seen pictures of it, haven't we? That image has become so familiar to us through the media, etc. Is that exactly how it looks? Coronaviruses were first identified in, in the 60s by a UK virologist named David Tyrrell. He was taking swabs from a patient with a common cold and discovered a different organism from ones that they'd known before. These were first imaged by an electron microscopist named June Almeida. She was a pioneer in virus imaging. They are indeed more or less spherical particles surrounded by a fringe of projections. And in the initial images, these folks thought they looked like the solar corona, and that's how the name comes up. The name was first presented in a brief nature paper in 1968 with Almeida as the first author. We now know that the spikes are associated with the ability of the virus to attach to host cells that possess the right receptors. The virus responsible for the current pandemic is called SARS-CoV-2. That's S-A-R-S hyphen C-O-V hyphen 2. It's closely related to the virus that caused the 2003 SARS epidemic, which is known as SARS-CoV. COV. People talk about this as being a novel coronavirus. The novel refers to the fact that it's newly discovered and it's different from the earlier coronaviruses. We can then assume, John, that this particular virus that we're all confronted with right now, creating the pandemic across the globe, has evolved from that same group. Yeah, viruses can evolve rapidly, especially RNA viruses and, and retroviruses, of which HIV is one. Lots of the single-stranded viruses, RNA viruses, reproduce their genetic material using an enzyme, and a polymerase that doesn't have proofreading capacities and they make more frequent errors, mutations. Viruses reproduce in large numbers. There's the opportunity for a new version to emerge. 
However, coronaviruses are an exception. They have lower mutation rates than other RNA viruses because their RNA polymerase actually does have proofreading capacities and correct errors. So they have fewer mutations. They're relatively stable. But of course, yes, they evolve. And this one has evolved to become very, very infectious. So what family are we talking about here? Who are these coronavirus crowd? The family to which SARS-CoV-2 belongs is the coronaviridae, what are called enveloped, single-stranded RNA viruses. They can infect amphibians, birds, mammals. The virus particles are, as we've just described, decorated by these club-shaped surface projections. Other coronaviruses include the one that caused the SARS epidemic, as we just mentioned, 2003. And then the one that caused the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which was in about 2012. But there are also at least four others that cause the common cold. These are not the most common cause of the common cold. Most colds are caused by adenoviruses. But there's some thought that the coronavirus that caused the cold might be providing some people with partial immunity to the pandemic virus. Almost every day now, the Victorian Premier here, Daniel Andrews, uses the phrase wildly infectious, wildly infectious. I want to drill down now into what we actually mean by infectious. You've talked about those little knobs, if you like, on the outside of the coronavirus, and you've already alluded to receptors and, and the ability to lock onto cells, etc. Is that the nub of what the capacity to infect is all about with a virus? This is indeed highly infectious. The general consensus is that this virus has an R naught of around 2.5. It means that each of the infected individuals can infect on average another two and a half people. It's a high degree of infectiousness that makes it spread so rapidly. So the uncontrolled numbers can rise very fast as we're seeing in many places in the world. And that's what makes approaches to population control via social distancing, via hygiene, via masking, via tracking and tracing, and via quarantine so important. Those steps, which were actually first implemented in the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic, are designed to reduce the R0 below one so that each infected individual infects fewer than one person. And eventually you can see that as we run out of infected people, the virus will in fact disappear from the population. When you talk about 2.5, are you talking about the intrinsic characteristics of the virus itself, or is it actually about how we interact with this virus? It represents a kind of maximum. It says uncontrolled, we'll end up with about two and a half. Once we start interfering with the way in which infected people interact with uninfected susceptible people, we can drop that R0 down. Earlier on, you touched on the idea of whether it's alive or not. It's probably irrelevant whether it's alive in the way we generally imagine something to be alive, but it's viable. And you also said that it lives within hosts, whether it's humans, bats, other animals, even plants. Anything with a living cell seems to be open to the virus. Now, we know that it does live outside the human body because we're now going to be talking about airborne infections and infections on surfaces. That's what all this is about, sanitising, wearing face masks. So this virus is viable outside the human body. That's how it's getting around. How is that possible? 
Does it live in some sort of medium? How does it survive outside the host? It lives in droplets, at least for its transmission from one person to another. There are some laboratory experiments that suggest that the virus can survive up to 72 hours on various surfaces, plastic and stainless steel, less on other surfaces. But there was a a real-world study that was done in Germany. They randomly selected 21 households that had infected individuals, and they found only one remote control, two metal doorknobs, and a wooden object contaminated. So it was about 3% of all the objects they examined in the houses. So it doesn't survive for very long on the surfaces outside cells. I don't think we yet have a full picture of the relevant conditions that alter the capacity of the virus to survive outside the body, but it isn't long. They are, as I said, obligate intracellular parasites. I used to understand the term contagious as being distinctly different from infectious. Do those two ideas overlap? There seems to be an emphasis on touching somebody else and then transferring the virus somehow. But also we're hearing much more now about airborne viruses, the idea of it hanging in the air. We've seen the research on slipstreams from joggers and even cyclists. We're getting much more conscious of perhaps being in a restaurant and the cloud of virus somehow moving to other tables. We've seen all those anecdotes. So what's more important, John, in your view as an epidemiologist, the transfer of this virus by touching different surfaces, transfer that way, or the airborne transfer? People do use these words interchangeably, but infectious means capable of spreading, being spread from one individual to another, transmissible, communicable. It includes diseases transmitted by indirect means, such as by water, and by food, by mosquitoes, what are called vector-borne diseases. Contagious, as you suggested, usually refers to diseases spread by contact between individuals. It covers a subset of infectious diseases, I suppose. But in this case, the words sort of overlap a bit in meaning. It's the high degree of infectiousness that makes this virus spread rapidly with its high r naught. It's generally spread by droplets in the air. There have been studies that have identified the impact of spread of the infection by individuals downstream in air conditioning settings. Spread of droplets increases with shouting and with singing. There's actually been a study of what happened in a choir practice. Droplet spread is inhibited by physical distancing and by masks. It's also the fact that, as you mentioned, evidence that the virus can become aerosolized for prolonged periods, not just attached to the larger droplets and transferred as a result of close contact. WHO has described it this way. They they talk about respiratory droplets defined as those that are more than five and up to 10 microns in diameter, and they spread only short distances before falling to the ground. Droplets smaller than five microns in diameter are referred to as aerosols. They're sometimes called droplet nuclei. So close contact with an individual, say a metre away, easily spreads the larger respiratory droplets, coughing, sneezing, talking, and particularly shouting and singing. Aerosols disseminate the droplet nuclei over longer distances and for longer periods of time. They're smaller particles, they remain in the air longer, they hang. 
It's known to occur during medical procedures, this aerosolization, but it looks as though it's what happens indeed, as you're suggesting, in, in indoor crowded spaces with poor ventilation, in choir practice, as well as potentially in restaurants and gyms. And all of those may facilitate super spreading. The possibility exists that aerosols may form as a result of flushing a toilet. As the virus is excreted in feces, it actually matters and a closed lid reduces the risk. You can think of it as a mask on the toilet. I want to try and build up an image of what happens in that moment that we can only imagine when that tiny virus you described right at the outset of our conversation arrives and meets a human cell. Obviously, our external skin is not prey to this virus. Obviously, it's looking for particular cells. Is that correct? The cells have to have a particular receptor that will take the virus in. The virus consists of a genetic material inside a protein coat, and then sometimes around that protein coat is what's called an envelope. And that's been co-opted from the cell membrane in which the virus has been produced. Coronaviruses are enveloped in this way. They have this extra coat. So when a virus buds out of an infected cell, it's wrapped in a piece of the cell's membrane, can then begin a new cycle of infection by fusing its stolen membrane to the membrane of another cell. All of the enveloped viruses, and that includes this one, contain what are called fusion proteins that are derived from the virus's own genetic sequence. Fusion proteins are specific to each kind of virus, which is a key reason why there's no really effective broad-spectrum antiviral drugs. They all have different ways of getting into the cell. Viral surfaces contain multiple copies of fusion proteins. For instance, there are hundreds of them on an influenza virus, far fewer on a HIV. The receptors which the virus targets are part of the cell's normal machinery, but they can be hijacked to dock with viral fusion proteins and thus facilitate the merging of the virus envelope with the membrane of the cell. For SARS-CoV-2, the receptor is called ACE2. It's normally an enzyme that has important functions in, among other things, control of our blood pressure. Once fused, the viral RNA is free to co-opt the cell's metabolic machinery in the way that we talked about and make copies of itself. These eventually burst out through the cell membrane and start the cycle all over again. You can think of lots of little aliens busting their way out through the surface of the cell. Those are free and they'll infect other nearby cells, but many of them will just be coughed and sneezed out or excreted in feces, sometimes urine, even tears. So it's possible that you can just get rid of a lot of the virus particles, but at least some will go on to reinfect others of your cells and the ones that were coughed or sneezed out will go on to infect potentially other people. It was seen, I guess, because of its history, its family history, as largely a respiratory disease that induced respiratory problems. But it seems to be infecting quite a range of other parts of our body, the brain, the heart, etc. John. So do we have different types of cells that respond differently to the virus or is the virus agnostic about these various cells? What the virus needs is a cell that will reproduce it. In order to have a cell that reproduces it, it needs a receptor that it can use to invade the cell. It doesn't care. 
It doesn't care where which cell it, it invades. As long as it's got an ACE2 receptor, it'll move to that cell. And there are lots of different cells in, in the human that have this particular receptor. So it's got multiple disease manifestations, as you say. And they're also central to the danger associated with this virus. As you said, it was initially thought to be a respiratory infection. And that's what we saw with the SARS and MERS. And it clearly is a respiratory infection, but that's not all. There are manifestations in other systems, gastrointestinal tract, brain, kidney, especially. One common feature may be infection of the cells that line blood vessels, so-called endothelial cells. Infection of those cells may well account for the risk that we see of thrombosis and stroke. And it may also be why the risk is higher with age and amongst those with existing diseases, because they already have more compromised, more damaged blood vessels. The virus can also provoke an immune response that doesn't just defend the body against the virus. It actually explodes outwards. It's called an, a cytokine storm. You get an overproduction of the cytokines, which are part of the body's normal immune defense. And this can produce widespread inflammation across the body and actually be lethal to the person in whom that occurs. They're not killed by the virus so much as by an overreactive immune system to the virus. How does a virus produce symptoms? We've talked about it fusing, penetrating, replicating, doing all those things within our cells. But how does that then result in our finding it difficult to breathe, having a bad cough, our heart being damaged, our brain being damaged. How does the virus actually achieve that? If it's in the respiratory system and the cells begin to break down and liberate the virus, the body is going to respond with coughing and sneezing. The body is going to respond with mucus in order to try and flush the dead cells that used to be the host cells for the virus, it's going to be trying to flush those out. So we start coughing and sneezing. You can see that if we've got damage to the cells that line the blood vessels, then the body will start to see that there are a whole bunch of dead cells. It'll respond by blood clotting. It's part of the body's response to damage. And that can end up with actually causing a clot in a vessel and, and a big enough clot will produce a stroke. You can see that the same thing could happen to the vessels that supply the heart with blood and so on. When the virus bursts out of the cell, it causes cell damage. The body detects damaged cells and attempts to mop up the mess. You're in the transit zone for the first of three Pandemic Primer podcasts. I'm Peter Clark with Professor John Potter in Nelson, New Zealand. If I'm out there in the environment and I get just a tiny bit of virus and I rub it on my nose and my mouth, I become infected. But maybe I've just got an initial very small load of virus. Maybe I'm in a restaurant and I take a deep breath and get a big load of virus. Is there an intrinsic difference between those two forms of infection on the body? Yeah, it does look like that. Viral load seems to be important. A study in Zhejiang in China showed that the virus was present in sputum and saliva in 100% of patients, that it was in, in the stools in about 60%. 
Serum was positive and only about 40%. So you can see that where the virus was in the body will vary and that will produce different responses in terms of disease state. The virus persists in stool longer than it does in the respiratory system. The persistence of the virus in the respiratory system varied with the, res- with the severity. So those with more severe disease had the virus for longer. And you can see again that why that would make sense. So duration was longer in older people and in men. And we don't actually know why there's a sex difference. Men seem to suffer more from this particular virus. A study in Hong Kong showed that the viral load was highest near the time of presentation, which is actually different from what was seen with the SARS virus in 2003. It's established as a risk factor then, viral load as a risk factor severity in influenza and probably accounts for the high risk of the pandemic, this pandemic, in healthcare workers. They simply get exposed more frequently and at higher levels. There was one study early on in, in Wuhan that showed that the median duration of shedding was about 20 days in survivors, but that the virus was detectable all the way to death in those who died. So the longer the virus hangs around, the more problematic it becomes for the bodies to fight. Let's run that little movie now. The virus arrives. It attacks one of my cells. Am I immediately infected? And then how soon after that little event am I infectious to others? I don't think we know the, the timing down to the, the second. The virus has to get into the cell and replicate and then shed out of that cell and into more cells. So the more you start with, the faster this process will go. And the highest of infectiousness looks like it's early in the process. And it may be that as the body gets control of the virus and begins to fight it back with the immune system, the viral load begins to decline in that body. The highest infectiousness looks like it's early. And it may indeed be at the time when the individual who's infected is actually asymptomatic. We hear from medical authorities as they do our briefings here about these windows of potential infectiousness. Are you very confident they're absolutely accurate? For example, we have the 14-day quarantine. We'll become very used to that idea. Is that just a generic approach? Are there exceptions to that? Are there people who have longer periods of infection? Can it recur, for example? Can they be infectious and not infectious and infectious again? How clear are we about all those things? Fairly clear in an empirical sense. The 14 days was chosen based on the likely clearance for most people. And if you test in quarantine, then you test early to see that somebody does indeed have a virus. New Zealand's been using day three and day 12, for instance, in a cycle of people who are isolated when they come from overseas. If there's a virus detected at day three, then that person goes into full quarantine and then they're tested again when the system's working perfectly at day 12. And if they're free of the virus at that point, it's regarded as they're no longer being infectious. So the 14-day period actually makes reasonable sense from what we know. Obviously, if someone's still infectious at day 12, you can kick in another 14-day cycle. And that two sets of 14 days was actually how New Zealand applied the lockdown rule. In other words, the intention was to stop the spread through two whole cycles, potential cycles of spread. 
And by that stage, you, your numbers would be small enough that you could actually track and trace anyone who was contacting anybody else who had the disease. The really devilish aspect of this virus is that wide range of symptoms from none, you mentioned the asymptomatic, to mild, to moderate, to severe, to fatal, right across that spectrum. That makes things very challenging, doesn't it? Because as we ask people to present themselves for testing, you're asking people to identify or self-identify an appropriate symptom, whether it just be a slightly scratchy throat, a bit of a runny nose, a bit of extra coughing, or difficulty breathing, which is more on the moderate or even severe end of that spectrum. So that broad range of symptoms really is very confronting and very tricky for us in terms of the epidemiology of this. The most common symptom actually with this virus is loss of sense of smell. In one study, it was shown to be six times more common in those with the virus than those without. So it's a kind of marker symptom. It wasn't universal, but it was really strong. We also see loss of appetite and fatigue, as well as the, the symptoms you already mentioned, namely the respiratory ones. One of the things that we probably need to do, and we don't do as well as we should, even in the best places, is actually have a full-on surveillance system so that we're able to pick up a lot more of the asymptomatic individuals who might be spreading in the community. The fact that you can actually shut the whole system down by enough social distancing, enough lockdown, enough quarantine, means that at some point you can eliminate the virus from the population. Elimination doesn't mean it is gone, it's not eradicated, It means that we have got the numbers down to the point where any time it sticks its head up, we can immediately track and trace all the individuals. But the problem with the symptom variability is indeed, as you suggest, do we just test people with symptoms? Do we test the worried well? How much surveillance should we do in totally asymptomatic people? And some of that's just empirical, and some of it has to do with how much capacity we've got in the system for doing testing. And you can see that in low and middle income countries in various parts of the world, there is not enough infrastructure to do anything very much about monitoring the way in which this disease spreads. Is there a lag time between the moment of infection, which we've imagined together, and being able to test that particular suspected person for the infection? Yes, there's a lag time. Exactly what that lag time is, not clear, but a number of cycles of the virus are going to have to occur before you'll be able to pick it up. John, we're hearing some of our authorities talk about shedding of virus. I found that an intriguing phrase. You talked about it earlier, the, the shedding of virus too, but apparently someone could be shedding virus, but that person's not infectious. How is that possible? What is this shedding of the virus all about? Actually, most people who are shedding intact virus are infectious, but sometimes you can detect virus that is just bits of the RNA that are left after all of the virus has actually been killed. You can end up with what looks like a false positive test. Shedding is its the way the virus spreads itself. We talked about mutations earlier in the evolutionary aspect of the virus. Do we clearly globally at the moment have mutated versions of this virus? Are we seeing a clearly different form of the virus, a mutation of the virus in the United States, for example, compared to Australia? There was a group at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre that 
has looked at mutations and have described some that increase the affinity for the receptor that this virus binds to. But there isn't any evidence yet, there are hints, but there's no real evidence that these have been selected for during the current pandemic. So they may exist, but they don't necessarily have an advantage over the earlier, less tightly binding version of the virus. So yes, there are mutations, and there's some evidence from some researchers that a more infectious strain emerged in Europe. Not everyone is agreed on the significance or the importance of this. It's a rather more stable virus than influenza viruses, for instance. But we're really in the dark. The virus has been only a problem for the last you know, six or seven months. We haven't got a full picture yet of what's going to happen over time. Mutation is one term I'm hearing, obviously. But the other one that we're hearing, particularly in the context here in Victoria, from the breakout from the hotel quarantine situations, they talked about strains of virus. They did genomic analyses and they identified strains of the virus. And then in New South Wales, they started talking about the Victoria strain, etc. So people are very keen in that track and tracing process, I guess, to identify various strains. So what does a strain of the virus mean? And yes. how can that be identified through genomic analysis? All DNA, and as with this virus, RNA, changes slowly over time. Damaged by radiation and chemicals, perhaps damage appears randomly, as well as the inability in some viruses not to be able to detect and repair changes. That's why some viruses mutate frequently, and we're familiar with that with the flu virus. Others are more stable, like measles. The coronavirus seems like it's in the middle somewhere. Most mutations are deleterious. They impair the capacity of the organism to function or reproduce. Sometimes a mutation appears that improves their advantage, improves their reproductive advantage or their survival or their, their infectiousness, so their ease of spread. Now, those Im improved versions, if you like, um, will gain an advantage and be selected for. It's not really a fact of mutation that matters. Much more, it's like the likelihood of selection because of improved survival or infectiousness. However, you can use these random changes that actually have no particular selection advantage to track where that particular virus came from. If it's got a change in one base in the RNA that's different in this group of people from that group of people, you can know that the mutation occurred at an earlier point and these folks were now infected by the people who share that mutational strain, and these people were infected by an individual who shares that mutational strain. You're in the Transit Zone. This is the first of three Pandemic Primer podcasts. John, we've imagined together what happens when the virus arrives within the human body. And we've discussed some of the things it does to penetrate cells. Meanwhile, what's the human body doing to counteract that invasion? The immune response looks a bit like this. The virus invades a cell, and once it's inside, it's invisible to the immune system. But cells have got a capacity to signal that they've been invaded. And the way they do it is by 
showing on the surface, on the surface of the cell, pieces of virus proteins which are attached to a particular signaling molecule that the body makes called the class one major histocompatibility complex proteins. Let's call them MHC class one. Oh, that helps. T cells, which are one subset of the immune cells in the body, circulate like boundary riders looking for infections. One type of T cell is called a cytotoxic T cell because it kills infection cells using specific toxic compounds. And the cytotoxic T cells work by reading those protein fragments that have been presented by the MHC class 1 molecules. It detects the virus-related fragments, and the T-cell sets in train the release of those cytotoxic factors, those cell-killing factors. Now, some viruses are tricky, and they stop the class 1, MHC class 1 molecules from getting to the surface. But then a different immune cell kicks in. These are called natural killer cells. They recognize a cell that's showing too few MHC class 1 molecules and kill them. So the agents that both the cytotoxic cells and the natural killer cells use include a compound called perforin, which, as you might imagine, actually makes holes in cells' membranes and so begins to destroy the cells. They produce things called granzymes. They occur in the granules of the T cells and they enter through the holes and they begin to destroy the cell that's infected by a process called apoptosis or programmed cell death. There's another compound that's produced called granulysin, which dissolves the outer membrane of the infected cell. And then there are cytokines, which include interferons and tumor necrosis factor. The cytokines transfer a signal from the T cell to neighboring cells and extend the range of cells that die. Interferons are also released by infected cells and can interfere with the virus replication and they warn the neighboring cells. All of those responses via T cells and natural killer cells, but viruses can also be removed by antibodies. Those are proteins made by the immune system in response to a previous infection or to immunization. And they can neutralize the virus so that it no longer is capable of infection, glue the viral particles together in a process that's called agglutination, making an easier and bigger target, if you like. And then they can activate other parts of the immune system and promote phagocytosis, which is the process whereby big cells called phagocytes engulf the virus. So all of that is a very complex system that the body organizes. There's an acute system that we've described involving the T cells, cytotoxic T cells and the natural killer cells. And then there's a longer term response that involves antibodies. The antibodies will prove to be important when we discuss vaccines. And testing. And testing. John, tell us more about this overreaction then that the human immune system seems to have in some cases. How does that work and how does it affect the human body when it overreacts in terms of its own immune system? It's been described um, in relation to a bunch of different infections. So it mentioned that the cytokines, they include the interferons and tumor necrosis factor and so on. They normally are part of the defense mechanism. They can transfer the signal from the T cell to the neighboring cells. They can enlarge the target. But if you get enough interferons released by infected cells, 
they can actually begin a, a positive feedback cycle that results in a large number of cytokines being released. And then the cytokines finding targets all over the place, not just in infected cells. So you get this massive inflammatory response that can damage a whole lot of organs and actually be lethal. Do we have clear research on whether somebody who is infected, apparently recovers, can be reinfected? This, of course, goes to the nub of immunity and developing a vaccine and whether those people who are, in fact, infected and recover can live with some sort of immunity. Do we have a clear bead on all that, the degree of immunity from being infected and recovering? It's really not clear whether the apparent repeated infection that we have seen reported is the result of false positive tests after a previous negative test. So the answer to your question is we really haven't got a good idea whether people can be reinfected. On the worrying side, there's one small study that shows that immunity to the virus, as measured by the neutralizing antibodies, so that second group of responses that we were talking about, they may decline rapidly, but other studies have seen longer-lasting responses. In order to be effective, a vaccine has to protect for a reasonable length of time. We live with influenza vaccines working for maybe a year, but if you think about our vaccines against measles or mumps or a variety of other infections, we expect them to be very extensive. As we don't yet have a vaccine, it's really too early to speculate on any details here. But the neutralizing antibody responses to several of the vaccines have been robust, and that's pretty encouraging. Yet to see exactly how long they last, yet to see exactly whether you get persistent responses. So we're yet to see whether we're absolutely clear on whether you can have the virus or have the vaccine and then be immune subsequent. This goes to the heart of the matter, doesn't it, John, when we talk about vaccines, which we will in later podcasts, and also to this notion, which we'll discuss in the next podcast on the pandemic, to the notion that the Conservatives with Boris Johnson flirted with very clearly, and perhaps the authorities in Sweden did as well. The idea of herd immunity, it seems to lurk beneath a lot of the political discussion around the coronavirus and our response to it. The idea that if enough people get it, and yes, there'll be a rather confronting death rate, but we can attain herd immunity. But that's by no means clear from what you say. If we're not very clear yet the degree or the duration of immunity from being infected in the first place. There are real problems with chasing that one down as a response to this virus because of the actual mortality that would be associated with seriously letting this virus run wild through the population. You've painted a very clear picture of all that goes on when our immune system kicks in, but why would this particular virus, or any virus for that matter, have a fatiguing of the immune response? After infection, why isn't it the case that we just have immunity and that continues? Vaccinations of various kinds provide immunity for different durations. What's the underlying biology of that, do you believe? Well, most of that is indeed due to the fact that the antibodies that we made against this particular exposure let's say a flu, whether we developed it as an individual who was exposed to the disease or we acquired it through the vaccine, the virus that turns up next year isn't the same as this one. And so those antibodies don't work anymore. Whereas for more stable exposures like measles and mumps, the antibodies that we've got and the antibody response that we can mount works just as well 10 years later because it's the same virus. 
So all the different mechanisms of interaction and penetration and fusion, etc., they all change with the mutation. Therefore, the reaction of the immune system is no longer competent to deal with that particular virus. Is that a correct assumption? This virus that we're talking about, the SARS-CoV-2, is going to go on using the ACE2 receptor as its way of getting into the cell, and a whole bunch of functions will remain consistent. What might be inconsistent is the kinds of signals that then emerge uh, as protein products of that virus so that the body no longer recognizes them or no longer has antibodies to those particular proteins. It's a wee bit complicated, John, isn't it? (laughs) You think? John, thank you so much for helping us out to delve into understanding much better, which I think is important for us all, about the coronavirus. And we'll catch you next time here in the Transit Zone. Thank you, Peter. New Zealand-based epidemiologist Professor John Potter. You can learn more about John and his research in the on-screen text with this podcast, plus many other useful links to good quality coronavirus information. I'm Peter Clark. Thanks for listening. And please join us for Podcast 2 in the Pandemic Primer Podcast three-part series right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the transit zone.